Greetings, and welcome to Unsupervised Learning. I'm Daniel Meisler, and this show explores the intersection of security, technology, and society, and thinks about what might be coming next. Every Monday, there's a news and analysis episode that condenses 5 to 20 hours of reading and analysis into a 15-minute summary, as well as regular essays, interviews, and book reviews that cover specific topics. The goal is to give you a concise, curated update on the most interesting things happening in the world, and to explore ideas that give you something to think about and prepare you for what's coming next. All right, welcome to episode 269. Got somewhat of a long episode again. Not sure how that keeps happening, but uh, yeah, this one is, we're going to guess closer to 30 minutes instead of 15. So let's get to it. Starting off with security news. The U.S. has announced charges against three North Korean government hackers who they say are responsible for the Sony hack, WannaCry, and a number of digital bank thefts. They reportedly work for the Lazarus Group, which is also known as APT38. Several users of the eGregor ransomware service have been arrested by French and Ukrainian police. These aren't the actual creators of eGregor, the system itself, but customers of the system. And the reason that makes sense is because the service is really a SaaS platform for ransomware, which allows cyber criminals to attack targets with ransomware without having to actually build the infrastructure. You just sign up for eGregor and you get like all the tools in uh, customer service and everything available to the platform. So they found some people who were actually using it like that, some actual customers, and uh, that's who got arrested by the French and Ukrainian authorities. Let's Encrypt has finished a massive upgrade of its systems that would allow it, if it became necessary, to rip and replace its entire portfolio of 200 million certificates in less than 24 hours. I think this is really smart. Think about how many other companies could replace their entire infrastructure of certificates with trusted certs, assuming there were some sort of major compromise, in one day. I really love this plan for the worst sort of resilience thinking that's going on here. Dropbox has released a password storage and synchronization tool called Dropbox Passwords. Kenna says that only 2.6% of 2019's 18,000 tracked vulnerabilities were exploited in the wild. Really love this story. So that's around 473 vulns. And only like 6% of those were used widely against more than 1% of organizations. So the message here from Ed Bellis and Kenna is that the idea that we're living in this wild west of, you know, everything's vulnerable and everyone's getting hacked is not really accurate. In other words, there are lots of vulns out there, but there are very few that actually matter. And I think this is, you know, it runs counter to the common RSA sort of hype, which I guess it is RSA season. But it runs against the hype of like, oh, it's it's horrible out there. The sky is falling. And just the sense of hopelessness that a lot of people have. And the security industry pushes that, right? I mean, you want people to feel that way when they're writing checks. And so this is a really interesting counter-narrative from Kenna. 
of course, they do sell, you know, software and a service that actually trims down vulns into a prioritized list. So there is some incentive there to have that narrative. I think that's important to mention. But their business model doesn't necessarily require this narrative. They could say, yes, it is the Wild West, and there's a million bad things out there, and let me tell you the order in which to patch. But they're not saying that. They're saying there are very few that are important, and let me tell you the few to patch. So I tend to believe, and I know some of the folks up there, or I used to at least, I tend to think that there's, you know, good faith going on here and that this is something they actually found from the data. It's also something that Jeremiah Grossman and I have talked about for a long time, which is, you know, how many of these things are really happening out there? How many of these things are actually real? And based on everything that he's seen and based on everything that I've heard, combined with conversations with people like, you know, Ed over at um, Kenna, but I've also talked to other people who are like competitors of them, and they kind of see the same thing. And I've done a lot of vulnerability management in the past. I tend to see the same thing. I've done a lot of incident response. I tend to see the same thing. It's like the same few vulns that are really doing the most damage, even if you have a million other vulns that are outstanding. So anyway, I think it's an important narrative to consider. If you already have the Wild West mentality, maybe temper it a little bit with this, and maybe the truth, you know, lies somewhere in the center, but something to consider for sure. South Korea says North Korea attempted to steal COVID vaccine data from Pfizer. They said APT groups Zinc, Cerium, and Fancy Bear, which by the way is Russian, were involved. So the other two are North Korean APT actors. China may be looking into restricting the export of certain rare earth minerals in order to harm America's military capabilities. And you definitely want to see the MCF strategy conversation that we have a little bit later here in the show in the analysis section. Vulnerabilities. SAP NetWeaver has multiple vulnerable services related to auth. And vulnerabilities have been found in the file sharing app ShareIt. Incidents. A lot of incidents this week. The California DMV says it may have lost up to 20 months of data after a ransomware attack at a contractor. It appears that Kia Motors America, which is Kia's American subsidiary, has been hacked with a $20 million ransom demand. But Kia has been denying this. I don't know if they're still denying it, but they were denying it pretty much all week. Yet, they still had a massive outage, and they didn't give any other explanation for that. So I think they were likely to just turn around and say, yeah, we actually did get hacked and have a ransomware issue. Underwriters Laboratories has suffered a ransomware attack that forced them to shut down operations to recover. Kroger had a third-party data breach that included customer and employee data. And the law firm that represented Trump in his election challenge has been hacked, with 100 gigabytes of data stolen and released. I've always wondered about hacks against law firms. You know, 
unrelated to this one, but it just seems like law firms have a lot of really sensitive data about relationships, who's working with who. And I know from experience that law firms do not have good security. They tend to underinvest in that area and think it's not important and not really understand it and just kind of ignore it. So not really sure why we don't hear more about attacks against law firms. Maybe they're happening and we don't hear about them, or maybe uh, people just haven't figured out that it's juicy yet. Not sure. Companies. CrowdStrike has purchased logging company Humio for $400 million, and Palo Alto Networks has acquired DevOps company BridgeCrew for $156 million. Technology news. Databricks is partnering with Google Cloud. Spotify is going to let people work from anywhere, but still pay them San Francisco and New York salaries. And Salesforce is basically saying they're doing the same thing. So we've all heard about the exodus from San Francisco, but a reporter has recently done some analysis on data coming out of the United States Postal Service. And it turns out most people who are leaving San Francisco are not leaving the Bay Area. They're just going to suburbs. And they're definitely not leaving California. The top three destinations were Alameda County, San Mateo County, and Marin counties, which are right here in the Bay Area. The top six counties were all suburbs of the Bay Area. And the top 15 counties were all in California. So it was only two destinations in the top 20 that were outside of California. And I think that was like Austin and some other place. Not sure where the other one was. But yeah, a lot of people are leaving the Bay Area to go elsewhere. But people who are leaving San Francisco specifically are staying in the area. And I found that really interesting. Google has fired another AI ethicist which it's a bad story no matter what's actually happening here, right? So either they're an evil empire that keeps getting discovered or they're really bad at hiring or some combination thereof. And don't forget Tristan Harris, the UI ethicist, who said he was also ignored and basically pushed out for telling them what they didn't want to hear. So I'll be curious to hear more details on this, but yeah, bad look. They just keep firing these really talented people and it's like have they done something wrong or did you hire them badly are they there to just cause trouble and they're not trying to do their jobs or you hired them for the wrong job or you there's some sort of mismatch here i mean this is just horrible horrible pr for them and uh really curious what's actually going on behind the scenes i'm not sure any of these articles are really going to tell us Companies, Ally.io or Ally.io raises $50 million in the OKR market. I find OKRs fascinating. I think it's great. I'm actually going to talk about it a little bit later. But the idea is I just, I love the idea of goals, establishing goals very clearly, articulating them, and then tracking progress against them. And this is evidently a concept. That is resonating all over the place. And that's why 
I think we've probably mentioned four or five OKR-based startups in the last like six months or a year. The market is thriving, and I'm happy to see it. Human news. Researchers were able for the first time to communicate with someone while they were lucid dreaming in REM sleep. So the communication was basic, but they could do things like give answers to like eight minus six by moving their eyes in a particular way. I remember this movie, super ancient. I was really young when I saw it. I think it might have been called Dreamscape, like Dennis Quaid or something. I can't remember. But um, really cool idea of attacking people. In that case, it was like attacking people through their dreams. But even just any sort of communication with someone while they're dreaming seems like super sci-fi to me. So this is really cool. According to a new study out of Dartmouth and Warwick, 11% of white middle-aged people with no college education reported extreme mental distress, which is defined as having serious emotional problems and mental distress for every one of the last 30 days. Every single one of the last 30 days. 11%. So that's almost double the percentage for non-whites with no college. And the rates have more than doubled since 1993. But back then, in 1993, it was the non-white group who had the higher percentage of distress. And now that is completely inverted. So how and why that inverted? They don't know, but, but that's what the data are, are showing. I think if you answer that, why that inversion took place and why the rates are double, and I think you come close to figuring out why domestic terrorism is basically poor white people at this point. And I think the hint here is that they don't feel valued or respected in society, and groups who feel like that will do anything to get that feeling back. 92% of New York City restaurants could not pay rent in December. 92%. A third of U.S. troops are refusing the COVID vaccine. 62% of Americans say we need a third political party. Mount Sinai is opening a psychedelic research center. A study out of UC Davis indicates that most bullying takes place among friend groups as a mechanism for jockeying for popularity, which of course goes against the common narrative, which is like it's the uh, the class bully or whatever, not inside of your friend group. But if you think about it a little bit, I guess this kind of makes sense. Interesting study. And global debt is now 356% of GDP. 356% of GDP. So, so we essentially owe, as a planet, about five times what we produce in a year. Content, ideas, and analysis. China's MCF strategy. So anyone who wants to understand China's strategy for long-term success and or dominance needs to understand this concept of MCF, which is military-civil fusion. It's the strategy of unifying the goals of its military and industrial worlds so that they can work together and support each other. In short, 
removing the boundaries between Chinese military interests and Chinese economic interests in the long term. And foreign governments have seen the MCF concept or strategy as a threat, since it seems logical that it would mean that Chinese corporations and startups would be used to help further Chinese military goals. I mean, it's, it's kind of like right there in the title, right? This basically means treating any interaction with a Chinese company as if you're dealing with a Chinese state. And unsurprisingly, that's exactly the dynamic that the West has seen developing over the last several years. So this is a super cool concept, MCF. And uh, actually, there's a new five-year plan coming out from the Chinese government. And because there's been so much scrutiny around MCF from foreign governments, they've actually taken the phrase out of their new five-year plan. But the language of MCF is still sprinkled throughout. It's just they're not using the term anymore because they feel like uh, they got some heat over it. Facebook, Google, and Australia. This whole thing with Facebook and Australia is fascinating. Basically, Australia is complaining because its newspapers are being destroyed or replaced by social media. But the trick is, the news is still being produced by media outfits. It's just not being consumed via newspapers or TV. So the media groups are putting in all the effort, while companies like Facebook get all the viewership benefits and the profits, obviously, that come with them. So Australia is being Australia and saying, no mas. They're requiring Facebook and Google to pay media companies for showing their content on these social media platforms. Google agreed to do this. They've got some sort of arrangement. And Facebook did not. And as a result, they pulled all news content out of Facebook. It's uh, pretty crazy. So the question is, one, what's, you know, air quotes, right in this situation? And two, what's the trend likely to be moving forward? Like, how does this actually play out? Who wins in this scenario? And who should win? Whatever that means, right? Who, who should win and who's actually going to win? Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I, I find it really interesting. On one hand, I think news media is just kind of clinging to any sort of technique or tool or weapon or blunt item that they can use as a weapon and kind of throwing it at the future, right? So you have Google and Facebook. They have these giant networks, especially Facebook. Let's just talk about them. They have this massive network. It's where everyone's going to get their news. And newspapers are like, mm, I'm sad because nobody's reading my old piece of paper here. And I'm going to lash out at what is replacing me. And that totally makes sense. But, I don't know, you don't want to give in to that because the future is not newspapers, right? But at the same time, who's actually writing the content? Where are these journalists supposed to go? I don't want journalism to die, and I don't want journalists to not have a career. So what are they supposed to do? Like, you want to support that ecosystem, because at least it's producing content and high-quality content from actual journalists. So I think that really matters. I, I don't know. I just I, I don't feel like there's a clean answer here. I feel like they're both fighting for kind of a broken model. 
because Facebook basically making money off of other people's content is not great and sustainable. You know, it, it's not the future that anyone needs. And then, you know, going back to newspapers and trying to raise up the old model, that's not going to work either. So I feel like we need kind of a, a third rail here. Although that might not be a good analogy because you can die if you touch it. Building a life dashboard. I'm starting a big life project for myself, which is tracking my overall life metrics around everything that matters to me. So this will definitely be a book someday. Basically, a full life dashboard that you can like put up on the side of the wall of your house or something. Inside wall, not outside wall. And the types of metrics I want to include are pretty exhaustive. And they go from the trivial to the ultimate meaning of like being on the planet. So things like books I've read, friends I've called this week, side income generated, times that I've given thanks, times that I log something in a diary, random acts of kindness that I performed, how many did I do this week or whatever, website traffic, calories consumed, number of workouts, what's my BMI, what's my resting heart rate, do I have a master's degree yet? Oh, yes or no. Um, have I reached my nest egg target yet? Yes or no. Don't actually have a nest egg target, but assuming that other people do. So it'll be kind of like dozens or hundreds of metrics. And here's the cool part. I'm not going to do it this manually. I'm going to actually automate the crap out of this and build my own dashboard using like dashing.io or Tableau and have it available as a mobile interface on my phone as well as as a website so I can display it prominently, like on, on the wall of my living room, on, on a giant TV. The process starts with defining my life goals. <clears throat> as I was talking about with OKRs, I find this whole practice like super interesting. And those life goals are obviously informed constantly by my entire life and everything I've ever read and experienced. And they're updated as I continue reading and learning more, whatever, becoming hopefully more wise. And they will be regularly revisited. And then the metrics flow from there. I'm currently in the dashboard design phase. I'm trying to figure out exactly what I would want this giant wall to look like. And uh, the whole idea is to just keep them right in your face constantly. Oh my God, my BMI is whatever. 47, that's too high. The idea being. If you know what you want, you should capture that and work actively towards it. And that's precisely what I'm going to do. I'll have some mock-ups to show soon. So really eager to get everyone's feedback on that. And also to hear if you guys are already doing that, if, or if you know anyone doing that, or if you've had similar ideas yourself, or if you've already implemented this. Definitely reach out. I think this is one of my favorite um, things that I'm going to be working on for the next several years. Well, probably forever. Okay, next one here. Enhancing my automated web testing stack. So I've been working more on my ever-evolving web security testing methodology, which is also recon, not just testing. And more importantly, the automation stack that powers it. The tools in the space just keep getting better, like dramatically better than five years ago. And project discovery has lifted the bar for everyone, in my opinion. 
So what I'm working on now is a rewrite of what I described in my Red Team Village talk from last year at DEF CON, where I break every assessment into small, discrete pieces. So I'm redoing my current structure using tools like Fuff, Unfurl, IPinfo, Host.io, Meg, GF, HTTP Probe, Anu, Nuclei, MapSider, Cloud Assets, etc. And I may be actually adding Axiom to this whole mix if I can figure out how to control costs for spinning up multiple boxes. I tend to do all this stuff continuously, so <clears throat> can't really run a scan continuously that spins up lots of boxes because I'll come back to thousands of dollars in hosting bills. So if I figure that out, that would be a uh, really cool thing to do to be able to distribute some of these tasks, especially for the uh, ones that lend well to that, like distributed scanning to make a massive scan go faster. But like I talk about in that talk, what I'm basically doing is taking a massive list of questions that I'd want to know about a particular company or a URL or an IP or a site or range or whatever. And I'm saying, go answer all those questions for me right now. Boom. That starts up like 20 mini processes that kick off and feed off each other to answer those questions. Many run in parallel. Some wait for others to compete before they start. And within a few seconds or minutes, I will then know all the domains associated with a company, all their websites, you know, which ones are likely to be high risk, which ones have web vulns, which ones have certs that are about to expire, which ones have open ports that are listening, which ones are sensitive open ports, which ones have weak authentication methods and you know you can even brute force off on a lot of the stuff like it's super super sick what you could do and there's just hundreds of questions that you can ask I, I tend to ask you know dozens but you could ask hundreds and all i did was press go with a single input parameter of like a domain or a company name or whatever so along with my metrics project which i just talked about this is my other major technical project that I have going on. I mean, this is kind of a perpetual project, but I'm just super heavy into it again right now because of all these new tools that are available. Um, but I've really been optimizing this recon slash testing slash monitoring stack for like probably eight years, I would say. It's probably when I started. So that's exciting. And uh, the next one here, continuous improvement. So you may notice that these previous two projects that I talked about have something in common. The unifying theme is something I wrote about in my book, which I called DOM, or Desired Outcome Management. And it also unifies with the OKR stuff, right? The idea is to know what you want, to set up continuous monitoring of that thing, and then to use new knowledge and the results of monitoring to make or recommend changes to our behavior, and then rinse and repeat, right? So it's goals to monitoring, to update goals, to update behavior, to monitoring, to repeat. This works for improving your retirement nest egg, your health, your web testing methodology, whatever, right? And the mechanism I use to power all of this is simply questions. What are you trying to accomplish in your life? How would you know if you were successful? How would you know if you're healthy? What do you need to do to a site to determine if it's secure or not? What about a website? If it were true, would prompt you to make an immediate change. 
These are not just the questions I care about, but the questions I intend to continuously ask in perpetuity. And if they ever become stale, I'll replace them with better questions. That's part of the process. This is continuous monitoring and continuous optimization turned into an actual methodology. And that's what I'm so excited about with this stuff. And that's, that's why I find the metric stuff, the OKRs, the web testing methodologies, the continuous recon, the health monitoring, all this stuff. I love the fact that when you're doing something actively and you're focused, you're reading a book, you're working, whatever, this stuff is going on in the background. It's constantly monitoring. And in the sense of security and security monitoring, like you're constantly testing yourself. You're, you're knocking on every door that you have to make sure that no one else is going to find an open door that you don't find first. And then, of course, if you do find something, you can go and fix it before someone takes advantage. And I feel like it's the same with health. I feel like it's the same with personal goals. Are you, are you as good of a friend as you need to be? Well, monitor how often you behave in a good way in, in terms of friendship. How often are you grateful? How often are you reaching out to people and being nice to them? Like all these things, like monitor. And then if you don't like what you see, make changes. All right, next one, throwing away trees. All right, this is a tweet that I did earlier. You want to know a liberal, big government, pro-environment policy that I would love to see? A ban on paper junk mail. I would vote for that instantly. Next one, California has a Texas problem. So a lot of people are making fun of Texas right now for not being able to handle cold weather. Um, Ted just got out of town. He went to Mexico. But I live in California, and here we have rolling blackouts in the summer, soon to be probably spring and fall as well, because we can't handle the heat. So it's not the cold that gets us, although it probably would, but it doesn't get that cold here usually. But it's embarrassing in both cases, right? Texas can't handle the cold. California can't handle the heat. So both of us are probably going to be on rolling blackouts. I mean, that should not be part of the conversation for the richest country in the world in 2021. So hopefully we're going to get this stuff fixed because this is just ridiculous. I mean, can does everyone realize that other people can see our news? <laughs> I mean, like... Europe and Asia and Africa and Latin America, they're, they're all looking at us and they're like, seriously, rolling blackouts? You can't figure out power management based on temperature? This is ridiculous. Notes. So thank you all for the input on products and services that you love. I found a few great ones from these inputs that were sent in. And uh, I'm going to be surfacing them uh, throughout the show over the next weeks and months. And uh, I'll, I'll keep mentioning them, but uh, I got some definitely really good ones and uh, please keep them coming. I'm about to add a metrics section to the show, dedicated metrics section. Pretty sure I'm going to do that. So I'm looking to have key metrics such as unemployment, home sales. This is like life metrics, mostly US focused, but also global uh, focused as well. But like unemployment, home sales, 
life satisfaction in certain temporary items, uh, like COVID stats, for example. And uh, I just want to see, do you like the idea? What other metrics would you like to see? I was thinking crime also. I mean, I just thought it would be cool. I would love a newsletter that just basically told me, you know, um, how are retail sales doing? How is the economy doing? How are jobs doing? Like all that stuff just in one crisp little area. I mean, I would subscribe to a newsletter that gave me that. So I'm just going to add it as a section here. And once again, just like the other one, just like what we've been talking about with this monitoring thing, I'm just going to code this up and go and get it from the authoritative sources and like drop it into um, probably on the site, probably on like slash metrics on the site so that they'll just always be available. So I could just copy and paste them into the newsletter and they'll always be up to date. Yeah, so let me know what you think about that. And uh, some of the entries in the ideas, content, and analysis section are getting rather long. Not really for the podcast. It goes really fast in the podcast. But um, in the newsletter, it's a giant block of text. And I don't know. It's freaked me out a little bit. I'm just like, "Ah, who wants to see a giant block of text? Other people were like, oh, it's amazing. You know, keep it in there. And some people were like, eh, you're giving me work. That's, That's a lot of text to read. Uh, one thing I've done to sort of mitigate this is the new header is bolded and it tells you exactly what it's about. So you can either skip it or consume it. It only takes like a minute or two to read, no matter how big the block of text is. Really, it's a pretty fast, concise little collection there. And I can turn them into full essays on the site if I want to later. So let me know what you think about deeper thoughts in the content and analysis section. And if you noticed, I don't have any external or discovered thoughts there. I got feedback from my friend Clint, who runs the TLDRSEC newsletter, that basically he couldn't tell the difference between content and uh, analysis and ideas versus the discovery section. So he was like, you should just have your own content in the content section. So that's what I did. So that section with the big blocks, that's for all original thought. And anything in discovery is clearly from outside, which makes sense. It's called discovery. And next item here, I am currently reading this book by David Brooks called The Second Mountain. It is extraordinary. It's just, uh, it's exactly the book that I need right now, actually. I feel like it's touching on so many things. There's actually someone else who's going through this exact thing that David Brooks went through. Uh, Scott Galloway is kind of going through this. Scott Galloway really needs to read this book, actually. I'm actually thinking about reaching out to him and just being like, have you read this book? He's probably going to be like, oh, David? Yeah, I know David. Yeah, we hang out all the time. Uh, he just had dinner in my house. And I'm going to be like, meh. But anyway, maybe not. Either way, I'm going to send him a recommendation for this book and a whole bunch of my close friends who I, I think might be right at the point in their lives where they need this. But it is extraordinary. I'm like three quarters of the way through. It's just a fantastic book. And uh, don't forget, the UL Book Club is this Sunday. So if you were a member, I hope to see you there. And if not, I hope you become a member so I can see you there. And we are talking about Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark, which is one of my favorite books. And uh, 
I asked everyone if we could do it, even though I'd already read it and they were game. No one else had read it. And I am reading it again to be ready for the book club. And uh, yeah, it starts off with this amazing fiction-based story, which launches right into the nonfiction. It's just a fantastic book. And people have already said in the Slack channel, the UL Slack channel, that they're really looking forward to the book club because they love the book. So excited for that. And Discovery. Aura Ring. So I've tried a lot of wearables in my time, and other than my watch, I've never stuck with one for more than a couple of weeks. And the Aura Ring is the exception. So I wear it every day and every night, which gives me sleep tracking without having to wear my watch or install one of those silly bed covers, which I almost did until I found out about the Aura. And um, by the way, about this discovery section. So what I'm going to redo is I'm going to refactor the top of the discovery section to be all the products and services. And by the way, I don't think any of these this week are actually supporters of the show. And you'll notice that I talk about them the same way as I do when someone is a supporter. And that is because the primary function of this is to surface cool stuff. Um, I really wish I could subscribe to a newsletter that did nothing but that. And by the way, if you know of one, please let me know, because this is important work for me, is is to be able to surface this stuff. So Aura Ring, not affiliated in any way. I am wearing it right now on my right, what is that called? I don't know, right ring finger, I guess. But yes, Aura Ring, fantastic stuff. Next one here is the X1 Ultralight Titanium Knife. It is in my left pocket right now. It is my EDC carry knife. Absolutely love it. It does two things for me. It's minimalist. It's this super thin piece of titanium, and it never needs sharpening because it uses a razor blade. So I used to be into super high-end knives. I've got a couple like $800 knives. Maybe my max one is like 600 from William Henry. I hated sharpening the thing and I hated when it wasn't sharp, but I just knew that when I was sharpening, I was like reducing the life of it because I was shearing off part of the metal and everything about it was beautiful. So I, I just don't want to carry a knife like that because I might lose it, but even worse, I might have to sharpen it and it's not as sharp as a razor anyway. So this thing is like this super thin piece of titanium it's just super badass, and you just put utility razor blades in it, and it just works perfectly, and the moment it gets dull, usually from Amazon boxes, you just put in a new blade, and it's brand new. Summarize IPs, an IP info service that shows you data on provided IPs, such as their ISPs, countries of origin, geographical location, type of business, etc. And it's got visualizations. It's like super sick. So you basically paste in a bunch of IPs. You're like, mm, these are suspect. I don't like them. You put them in there and it'll tell you, oh, they're all coming from whatever, University of Shenzhen. And you're like, oh, well, that explains it. CloudList, a utility from Project Discovery that pulls host names and IPs from your cloud providers so you can scan them. This is really cool. I was doing this already uh, using a different technique, but uh, this is really cool. 
If you're doing any sort of self-monitoring, you need to get on this thing. Map Cider, a utility also from Project Discovery that breaks up a cider range into multiple pieces based on definable criteria. So you can just be like, oh, um, I want this giant multi-million um, sized cider range to be broken into 20 pieces. And it will give you 20 different ranges that you can use which you can then send to something like Axiom to have different boxes work on in parallel. Super cool. Next one here, BB Scope, a tool that will give you the approved scope for a bug bounty program. You just send it a request, and it looks, I assume, at the domain, and then looks that up in this database, and it tells you what you can and cannot touch. Next one here, bookfeed.io, a tool that lets you specify a list of authors and get an RSS feed of their latest releases. I am absolutely, I have this tab open. I'm about to go do this right now. Paper Karma, reduce your postal junk mail by taking a picture of the sender's address. My buddy Leaf responded to a tweet earlier today where I talked about the junk mail thing and he's like, oh, you got to try this. And uh, I went and signed up. So going to be trying that shortly. And I miss my bar. Recreate your favorite bar scene using a website. This is uh, pretty cool. It's funny. Uh, I've got a bunch of playlists, actually, where it's like a coffee shop. And you hear people talking in the background. Used to put on headphones that had noise canceling, so you wouldn't have to hear that. But now we, we're thriving on it. We, we yearn for it, right? So much so that Clubhouse is doing really well, and it's just a bunch of people talking. Article here, relax, machines already took our jobs. Relax, machines already took our jobs. Reddit is America's unofficial employment hotline. This is a New York Times article. And AI has finally given us a remaster of Never Gonna Give You Up in 4K by Rick Astley. So, about to get Rick rolled in 4K. Recommendations. Okay, this one is super cool. Probably one of the best recommendations that's been in the show. Ask yourself very seriously, at the scale of your entire life, what would you do if you weren't afraid? What would you do if you weren't afraid? Would you be with the same person? Would you have the same job? Would you even be in the same industry? Do you know your ideal pursuit or your ideal lifestyle? Okay, so now that you have that clearly, hopefully in your mind, you're probably still thinking about it, but assuming you have that in your mind, how can you face the fears that are stopping you from doing that and move towards your ideal life? Interviews with dying people reveal that most people don't regret what they did. They regret what they didn't do. So don't be that person. Don't be that person who regrets. Think about what you would be doing right now if you were not afraid and find out how to move towards that. And the aphorism for the week, humility is the awareness that you are an underdog in the struggle against your own weakness. Humility is the awareness that you are an underdog in the struggle against your own weakness. 
David Brooks.